Thank you for sharing, Miss Betty. It is wonderful to be able to celebrate. Often we stop to pray and to ask God for things, and then we fail to stop and say thanks afterwards. And uh, it is a blessing to be able to do so. Uh, we do welcome everybody as we celebrate, as we begin this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. Obviously, this past Thursday was a big day. Not only was it uh, the day that kicked off the Christmas season as Black Friday has become Black Thursday, but uh, it also was Thanksgiving Day. And of course, on this particular weekend, it gives us the opportunity to simply reflect on the many things that we have to be thankful for. If we were to stop and to genuinely look at the things that God has done for us, uh, I'm not sure we could say enough to genuinely be able to say thanks. Uh, this past Thanksgiving Day, people all around our nation sat at a table and identified things which they were thankful for this year. I had the opportunity with my kids to ask them the things that they were thankful for. Many of the answers that were given included things like family, good health, a home to live in, food on the table, access to good education and to hospitals and to other forms of medical care, uh, thankful for work, thankful for a day off from work, uh, and great friends and a million other things. I wonder what you are thankful for this year. You know, it's good for us to express our thanksgiving. In fact, God's Word tells us to do so in every circumstance. I want you to listen this morning to the words of Paul as he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, normally when we look at this passage, we only look at 1 to maybe verses 15 to 18 or sometimes just verse 18. I want us to read verses 15 to 19 this morning. Still a short passage, even though you're talking about five verses. Uh, it's basically a part of Paul's final remarks to the Thessalonian church, but it includes some great words of wisdom for the church today. This is what it says. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, this may seem a little bit elementary for us, but to really understand what Paul is saying, we need to understand the word thanksgiving. I'm afraid that many of us have reduced it to a spirit of peace and a feeling of being blessed. Perhaps for some, it has become somewhat of a feel good moment because things are good in their lives, but it should be so much more. I want to demonstrate this for you, and I'm going to ask Joel Seavey if he would come up and just kind of help me with this. I have not given Joel a lot of explanation as to uh, what I'm going to do here, but let's imagine for a moment that Joel decided he wanted to give me $20. Oh, thank you, Joel. Now, I... I want you to notice what I did there. I expressed my thanksgiving. Now, this is one way of doing it. Another way, would he gives me the $20. I'm not giving it back to you. <laughs> he gives me the $20, and I just smile and, okay. I understand. I feel good because I, I just got 20 bucks from Joel. Now, I do want to clarify, I gave him that $20 to begin with, so he's not getting it back. So, 
But understand that for many of us, we feel good because good things have been done for us. But at some point, we also must express to the individual, thank you for what you have done. We must express our appreciation to them. It's not just that you feel good, that there have been good things that have happened in your life, but rather we must be able to express to someone else that we appreciate what they have done. What is the point? Thanksgiving is more than a feeling. It is an action. It is an expression of appreciation. But to whom should we give thanks? I was a bit surprised when I was looking up the definition for the word thanksgiving this week. As the Oxford Dictionary defined it as the expression of gratitude, especially to God. You see, encompassed in the act of thanksgiving is the idea that someone has been very good to you. Things don't just happen by chance, but there is somebody who put things in order for you. Now, I'm not so foolish as to think that God is the only one that we should give thanks to, but he is certainly the one who has blessed us more than any other, and therefore he deserves our thanksgiving. Know that the Oxford Dictionary is not a Christian publication. It is simply a tool that is used basically across many different genres of education so that people can know a definition. Yet even in the Oxford Dictionary, when we look at what, what thanksgiving means, it is an expression that is especially given to God. So how has God blessed us? Today's passage begins with a piece of instruction that we are to rejoice always. We talked about this recently in our study of Philippians. As Paul writes to the Philippian church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Remember that this calling to continually rejoice is not necessarily an indication that we like suffering. Rather, it is a realization that God can take even bad things and turn them into good. It is a realization that God is faithful and he will walk with us no matter what we walk through. And it is a realization that whether we walk through trials or moments of great celebration, we have already won. We can rejoice always. Because we know that regardless of the current situation, Christ has made us victorious over sin and death. We have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to celebrate. So we are called to rejoice always. A great model of this would be a man that many of you knew. Just checking to see if Susan is here. Mike Rogers. Mike had been battling with cancer for some time and had reached a point where he was unable to do many of the things that he had been able to do earlier in life. He couldn't take care of some of the things around the house. And on one particular occasion, a group of young people from the church went over simply to help out. Uh, they've got a lot of trees and, on their property, and they had a lot of grass that needed to be cut. So a group went over, and they raked leaves, and they had to cut some of the grass. They had to cut up some of the wood. And as they completed their time there, probably spent two or three hours there, 
Mike invited everyone to come inside. Mike was in incredible pain that day. He was suffering greatly. The cancer was very quickly eating away at his body. Mike invited everyone to come inside. He wanted to pray with each individual that was there, but not so much to pray for healing. You see, Mike had reached a point in his life where he was okay with whatever took place. Obviously, there was a part of him that didn't want to die at that moment. He still had a family, still had people that he loved very much, and obviously he would have loved to have seen God heal him in that moment. But as he began to pray, he didn't even ask anyone else to pray. He said, I want to pray. As he began to pray, He prayed for each individual that was present that day and prayed that God would make himself real to them, that they would experience a joy that they had never experienced before. This is a guy who is suffering in that very moment, yet here he is able to rejoice and ask God to give joy to others. Later that very same night, I received a phone call that Mike had been taken to the hospital and that he was not going to make it. The very same night, that very same night that he knew that he was likely going to die, he is there praying that others will experience the joy of Christ. Rejoice always. When everything is going great in your life, you know what? It is easy to rejoice. When you've got tons of money sitting in your bank account, it is easy to rejoice. When the doctor says everything is fantastic in your life, it is easy to rejoice. But when you receive word that you're probably not going to make it, we must still rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This leads us to Paul's second point of emphasis this morning. As we rejoice always, we must also pray continuously. The King James Version says that we must pray without ceasing. Understand that this is more than praying at every meal or repeatedly in a church service. Instead, this is a type of prayer that has no end. I remember the first time that I heard this verse. I had grown up in the church, and I know that my pastor likely had preached from this text on multiple occasions, and he probably had referenced what this verse meant, but it never registered until one night I was in college, and we had a Bible study that was going on, and a young man began to share about what it meant to be in a continual spirit of prayer. I remember leaving that meeting thinking, wow, that would be something that is fantastic to be able to experience And I know that this may seem really elementary, but for me, it kind of helped something click in my mind. I went back to my room that night, and I began to pray. And of course, it's late at night already, and uh, I began to pray, and the next thing you know, I wake up, and it's the next morning. And I realize I never said amen, which means I guess I'm still praying. Again, I told you, I know it sounds really simple and almost dumb, but to me, It was something that I needed because I had become a master at being one thing in front of one group of people 
and another thing in front of another group of people. There were things that I could say in front of my friends at school that I never would have said in front of my mom because she could just almost rip my ear off. That's the way it seemed. I knew that if I'd have said those things in front of my mom, there were consequences to it. I could act one way at home, and I could act another way at church. Certainly there were things I never would have said in front of the pastor. I had become one of those people who I could turn on my Christianity and turn it off. And the problem is that's not Christianity at all. The reality is what I had become was a hypocrite. I didn't even know who I was, which one was really me, the one that I was at school or the one that I was at church. And honestly, it created a horrible problem in my life. Now go back to this moment of me realizing I'm supposed to be in a continual spirit of prayer. There were things I wouldn't say in front of my mom because if she heard them, I knew there were consequences. Now I find myself in a conversation with God. You know what? It's really hard to say some of those things you're not supposed to say when you're in the middle of a conversation with God. It's really hard to look at a young lady in a way that is unhealthy and unwholesome when you know that you're in a conversation with God. It's really hard to show an attitude of anger and unhealthy anger when you're in a conversation with God. We are to pray continuously, which means you don't have to necessarily close your eyes and fold your hands, which would be good because you should be able to pray while you drive. You should be able to pray when you're at work. You should be able to pray right now while Pastor Mike is preaching. You have the opportunity to simply converse with God, to allow God to speak to you, and at the same time, you speak back with Him. Everybody else doesn't have to hear it. It's okay. God desires a conversation with you and with me. For me, it changed everything. You know, it's... Interesting that Paul calls us first to rejoice always, and then immediately he focuses on this need for prayer. See, when we begin to pray continuously, there's a sense of joy that will naturally flow out of it. We must rejoice always, but we also must pray continuously. How should we pray? I recently read an article on the foundations of the United States, and this is simply an excerpt from it. This is what it said. America was built on prayer, a strong foundation if there ever was one. Revisionists would have you believe that the signers of the Declaration of Independence were all pantheists, deists, and agnostics who didn't have a lot of time for God. If that's true, then agnostics back then sure prayed a lot more than Christians do today. For instance, both morning and evening, our first president knelt before an open Bible to pray for God's leading. Perhaps one reason this nation is faltering morally is because God's people don't spend much time praying for her. What I find especially fascinating, however, is that Jesus also needed prayer. Naturally, we assume that this faith was inherently strong within Christ. But the Bible tells us that Jesus would arise early in the morning, that he would go off by himself to pray. Sometimes he would pray all night, 
like he did before choosing his disciples. Prayer is incredibly important. Indeed, every revival comes on the heels of prayer. For instance, God poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, his new church, when these people had gathered on their knees for about 10 days. Later, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to pray more as a church and as individuals in our own lives. William Carey was a missionary to Burma, India, and the West Indies, but he also was a shoe cobbler. People sometimes criticized him for neglecting his trade because he spent so much time in prayer and thanksgiving. Carey answered, cobbling shoes is a sideline for me. It helps me pay expenses, but prayer is my real business. And God would use him mightily to convert, convert many individuals to Christ. On this topic, Martin Luther would comment, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. How do we pray? We must ask as the disciples did, Lord, teach me to pray. What I find intriguing about the disciples asking that question is these are individuals who had grown up going to the temple, to the church, basically. They had prayed many, many prayers, yet it seemed as if there was something that was lacking in their prayers. It seems almost as if they were praying, but perhaps they were going through the motions of prayer. They had been told, this is what you must say, and this is how often you must say it, and this is at what time you must say it. But the prayers that they were offering seemed incomplete, so they say to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. It's recorded in both Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. But as Jesus teaches them to pray, this is what he says. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a, you know, that's a prayer we used to pray all the time in church. I remember even as a high school football player, before every game we prayed this prayer, which is, actually it fits so well with that idea that sometimes we just go through the motions of prayer. Within this prayer, there is a model for us as to what genuine prayer looks like. The heart of this prayer is one of praise and thanksgiving. It involves us realizing where we stand in relationship to God. And we could break down the entire passage and you'll see this theme over and over again presented to us. Our Father, that's a, a personal term. It's a father. It's a son talking to his father. It's a statement of respect. Who is in heaven? He is over us. We could go through this entire prayer. What it comes down to is we serve one God who has blessed us so much. 
And we ought to be thanking him every moment we get the chance. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice continually. Develop a spirit of continual prayer so that you are constantly coming before him, simply praising who he is. Something else that flows out of that is the spirit of thanksgiving. The original passage in 1 Thessalonians then calls us to give thanks in all circumstances. What's the best way for us to give thanks? Perhaps the best way to answer this question is to look at something completely different. Imagine for a moment that your child has done something wrong. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, you must know my child. Imagine for a moment they've done something wrong. And they know that what they did was wrong. Maybe it's because you've corrected them, you've rebuked them, you've basically called them out. Is it enough for them to say sorry? Or would you rather see them make a change in their behavior? I think we all know what we'd rather see happen there. Often what happens is children say, well, I'm sorry. And then 10 minutes later, they're doing the exact same thing over again. Did they really mean anything by saying that they were sorry if they continued to do the same things over and over again? The answer is probably not. Well, now let's take that and let's go back to this issue of thanksgiving. Is it enough when God does something good for us if we say thanks with our mouths, but we do not display any actions showing the appreciation that we ought to have? You think about it, God's been very good to you. Just think for one moment about all that God has blessed you with. And you're saying, well, I can't do all that right now. Think for a moment about the many things God has blessed you with. How have you expressed your appreciation to him? With words? And there's nothing wrong with saying thank you. It's a good thing. But wouldn't it be better to simply live your life as an expression of appreciation to him? He has been that good to you. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. He doesn't say if you love me, you will say that you love me, but rather if you love me, there will be action associated with it. If you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. If you appreciate what God has done, you will live different. You will live as one who gives thanks. How is it possible for us to live thankful lives in all circumstances? It's because we know that God is always working for our best interest. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be good and everything's going to be easy in our lives. We will still face junk. There will still be things that come up that we may not like and we may wish that they didn't happen. We may not enjoy all the struggles that we face, but we know that our God is still in control. We know that he's going to take care of us and that we will be okay. That's why we can still say thanks. The final point that I have for you is this. Again, this is a verse that normally doesn't get included with this passage. In verse 19, it says, do not quench the spirit. It's as if it's introducing a new idea that is somewhat unrelated to the other aspects of this passage. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Three great points, but 
Let me suggest to you that this idea of do not quench the Spirit is just as much a part of this passage. When we live as joyful, thankful, prayerful people, we also invite the Spirit to have His way in us. When we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Him, we can rejoice in every situation. We can pray because we know God is over everything. We can give thanks even in the difficult things that we face because it's not about us, it's about Him. And when we make it about Him, there is a natural invitation to the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Far too many of us have become so consumed with our own lives, our own wishes and desires, instead of simply focusing on Jesus Christ and inviting His Spirit to truly take the lead position in our lives. I don't know what you face this Christmas. I know some of you guys are going through some really difficult things. I don't know the struggles that are present for many of you, though. What I do know is this. My God is faithful. My God has always been faithful. He will always be faithful. And you can rejoice whether there's difficulty or blessing. You can be thankful whether things are exactly the way you dreamed them to be or whether it's completely different, something that was completely out of your scope of expectation. You can pray and simply have that continual conversation with God. And I will guarantee you that in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit will come in and He will fill you and He will work in you like you've never experienced ever before. I believe that that's what God desires for us. Maybe a part of it is caused by our culture because to us the Christmas season has become a season not of giving but of receiving. (laughs) We go and we buy gifts specifically on Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving because we think that if, if our kids receive the right gifts, they'll love us and they'll appreciate it. And sometimes, actually I admit this, there are times that I catch myself shopping and I'm supposed to be shopping for my kids and I'm thinking, I'd like that. Our culture has dictated to us that it is about us. But I'm telling you today, it is not about us. It is about Jesus Christ being the Lord of us. It is about Him being in control regardless of what other stuff we face. When we get that perspective right, the Holy Spirit will be welcomed in us. And it will be a place where God will bless. He may not give you everything you want still, But he will bless, and he will be there, and he will be faithful. If you would, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, it is our desire that we would truly reflect your character, your heart for us. Each individual who is here comes with different baggage, different experiences that we're dealing with right now. Some of us are dealing with health issues that we've never had to fight before, but they're coming. Some of us have job issues and we're not really sure what tomorrow will look like, whether or not we'll even have the same job and how will our financial needs be met if we don't have those jobs and there are relationships that 
nobody else even knows about, but they're struggling, they're broken, they're, they're in jeopardy of being completely gone. Lord, in every situation, help us to rejoice. Help us to pray. Help us to give thanks. Lord, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to come into every one of those situations and help us to simply be reminded that we are not alone. Lord, I pray that you would move in us. Allow this Christmas season, as it begins in many ways this week, Lord, allow this Christmas season to be a season for Christ and not us. Lord, help us to simply embrace you and what your gift means to us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I did have someone ask me, we were talking about the name Christmas and what it actually means. If you go back to the Latin, obviously the first part of it we get, that's Christ. The mass actually is a part of a, uh, actually the, a lot of the Catholic services still hold a mass. Uh, it's a time to worship. And this Christmas season ought to be a time for us to worship Christ, to lift him up. And I encourage you, find every opportunity during this Christmas season to let this be a time of worship with Christ. I do want to challenge you in one way. I still have a few minutes, so it's okay for me to do this. I do want to challenge you in one particular manner this week. And uh, I say this week, but it's really intended for the Christmas season. I believe very firmly that God wants to do something great through this church. Recently, I challenged you and I encouraged you guys that we are going to go back to doing things the way things used to be done. Uh, basically, focusing on Christ again and us being a people that are called to live in a holy manner. And I want to encourage you to do that, but I want to encourage you to bring others to be a part of that. The Christmas season is the time of year where people are more likely to come than just about any other time of the year. So I want to challenge each one who is here today. There are four Sundays of Advent, basically. Today does not count because this is our Thanksgiving Sunday. But what I want to encourage you to do is, beginning next Sunday, the next four Sundays of December, to try to bring at least one person with you, at least during that Christmas season. You may have a neighbor, you may have a family member who you've been wanting to invite and looking for an excuse. How can I get this individual to come to church with me? There are some great opportunities to do so. I want to encourage you, bring someone with you. Next week, we have our children's Christmas program. I'm going to tell you, it's going to be so exciting to see those little kids get up here. And in the process, they will introduce people to the love of Christ. You know, some people will come for a children's Christmas program that would never come to hear me preach. What they don't know is that after they're done, I still get to share the gospel message, which is awesome. So I encourage you, invite someone to come with you next Sunday. The Sunday after that is the adult Christmas program. And there is a great opportunity for people who love music to come and to be a part of that. But again, do you know what, all, what they're also going to get? The gospel message. So we want very much to be that church that is reaching into this community, but it's going to require all of us to make that happen. So I want to encourage you to invite others to come be a part of this Christmas season. By the way, you, you can bring them to the other Sundays of Christmas too, but those two are the easy ones in my opinion. So bring someone with you. 
I do thank each of you for being with us today. I hope you leave with a spirit of thanksgiving. Consider the things that God has given to you, and you rejoice over that. Thank you so much. Go in peace.